Welcome to The Sustainable Life. I'm here with Chris Beistroff again. Chris, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. And especially to talk about something that's it's so hard to talk about in the world. I feel like if you say the word overpopulation, something like half the people will think immediately eugenics and half the people will think who's going to choose and, and, and race and, and gender and things like that. And so I'm really glad to talk about uh, the numbers and, and, and the patterns and the trends. So yeah. where we left off, and because I think this stuff has to be talked about. There's just no way to talk about sustainability. There's no way to reach sustainability without talking about it. And there's no way to talk about sustainability except population has to enter into it. Right. And overpopulation in particular. Right. If, if your listeners may be familiar with the I equals PAT equation, where I is impact, P is population, A is amflu- affluence, and T is technology, which is uh, goes back to the 70s. And, uh, John Holdren, Barry Commoner, and Paul Ehrlich uh, worked this out, uh, that the, the, these were common sense ways to calculate the impact of, of humans on the planet. And of course, it's proportional to the number of humans on the planet. And we don't talk about it. We don't get anywhere. By contrast, um, Alan Weissman's book, uh, Countdown, talked about, I mean, a huge change for me, for me, was what enabled me to talk about it was Machai Viravadya in Thailand, who made it a fun thing to talk about and helped bring, it's funny, I, I think it was talking about Thailand, that the book mentioned that the population growth was near the theoretical maximum. Which I was like, theoretical maximum? That's kind of an odd thing to have here. And then when you think about it, it's like, well, the human body can, you know, takes nine months and and it was near the theoretical maximum and then brought it down to roughly sustainable through joy and fun and playfulness and like, you know, giving out condoms to kids and making sure taxi drivers all had contraception available and education, things like that. No, none of those stuff that everyone's like jumps into, which I guess for historical reasons does make sense why they might make that jump if they don't know that no one, I, I don't know anyone who, t- I know a lot of people talking about population and overpopulation. I don't know anyone who's proposing eugenics or. No, but you're, you're right about. It's the opposite. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're right when you said uh, the typical reaction is uh, eugenics or something, or you go first or something like that. Cause I just surveyed some of the uh, Twitter responses to Paul Ehrlich's latest post, and that's what they were. Uh, they're just crazy. I can't block enough people. So you're talking about uh, the country Bhutan, where they measure gross national happiness. Is that uh, what, who you're referring to there? About what? The, the well, I was talking about Thailand. Machai Vivadi is in Thailand. And this is like in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Actually, 70s and 80s, because I know part of it was that because of all the condom use, when AIDS hit, he was credited – or not he was credited. How do I put it? You know, result as a side effect, something like 10 million lives were saved – that would have died from AIDS. Right. Well, uh, that's fewer lives that are born. It uh, means that more of us uh, can be healthier and more happy uh, who are sharing all the world's uh, resources. Yeah, I wouldn't say this if the Earth had 100 million people on it because I'd say, sure, we can grow the population. But we, I'm sure you've also looked at – I mean, you've, you've read the books and done the research on what the Earth can sustain – Sustainably, I mean, what numbers do you come up? I mean, I see like three billion, two billion. 
Yeah, I've I've kind of read r- reviews of all that. I've read some of of Joel Cohen, and, and I've read Thomas Malthus. I went way back where he does not propose a particular number, but he describes how uh, humans behave when they are approaching the carrying capacity, and I thought that was really good. But um, yeah, there there are a lot of people put out numbers, and um, most of them. Uh, not really, they're just uh, picked out of a hat, most of them. Uh, the best numbers, I think, are coming from people that are doing the ecological footprint analysis. Uh, but uh, those are people that are not very widely listened to. <laughs> and uh, I, I once ha- I had an in, uh, run-in with the uh, inroads people that are modeling climate change, how they don't model uh, population well. They just take the UN model. Sorry, Wolfgang Lutz, but uh, they they take that and our projections for changes in the climate are based on a population that just goes up and flattens off. Um, I tried to point out to the modelers that uh, climate change is going to affect food supply. Food supply is going to affect population. So there should be a feedback loop. And these are the these are the promoters of the use of systems dynamics so they should they should be all about feedback loops <laughs> so uh there's there's predictions are all over the place for where population's going but you've got this predominant uh population trajectory out there that everybody cites and it's the the UN uh projections so a um, lot lot of uh disagreement and i think because there's not a whole lot of science behind those projections, uh, people say, well, I'll just take the one that everybody else takes. So um, anyhow, that leads up to what I wanted to talk about, and that is how do you make these projections? And uh, and so I have been thinking about this for uh, quite some time about how you uh, make projections for, because a long time ago, uh, I looked at the population growth curve over the last couple of millennia. And I said, everybody says this is exponential growth, but it's not exponential growth. You can't fit it to an exponent uh, with with any constant in the exponent. It doesn't fit. In fact, it's hyper exponential. It's almost hyperbolic. So it just, it didn't make sense in terms of the classic population theory. So um, that got me thinking about it because I'm also kind of a math nut and I, I really like to model things. Um, and so I started modeling it when I started teaching a course in, in human population, and I was forced to try and explain why it wasn't an exponent, exponential curve. And, uh, and then I, I modeled it and came up with a very simple model for hyper exponential growth. And then I was faced with what happens at the end, why it can't just keep going up. And now that I've modeled it as a hyper exponent, which is like a parabola, I'm sorry, like a hyperbola, it's going to reach uh, the asymptote and we're just going to go to infinity. So I've, I've made it worse in a way, uh, our, our outcome, by modeling it as a hyper-exponential. So I got to the question of, you know, where does it end? Where does it stop? And look in the literature and, and you ask, has anybody modeled the endpoint of population yet? And nobody has. They've uh, the, as I mentioned, the uh, footprint 
ecological footprint analysis people, William Reese, Mathis Wackernagel, uh, put up a number, but we've already exceeded that number. <laughs> and uh, so I didn't have anything to hang on to. So I'd, I figured I'd, I'll just take the, the ecological footprint biocapacity numbers. This is, this is kind of like a, a carrying capacity number. It's like the whole amount of energy uh, produced by nature in the course of a year is called the biocapacity. And so I could kind of take that as a ceiling. And then I, so I, so here I am, I have just the ecological footprint data to use to get any kind of sense of the endpoint of population growth. And I'm looking at a hyper exponential curve and I noticed something. It stopped being hyper exponential around 1965. And it's been sub exponential, not even exponential, sub exponential, linear, and even curving downward in recent years. So I, I thought, oh, okay, it is, it calls for me to add a new equation. I have the hyper exponential equation. Now I need another equation that models how much we're deviating from hyper exponential growth. And so that became the basis for the systems dynamics model world four published in 2021. Um, so this downward forcing, uh, this downward force on population is akin to hitting something. So you're hitting a limit that thing that you hit is going to push against, uh, the thing that's hitting it, which in this case is, is, is population. And, uh, and so I modeled it as, uh, that this, the, when you're running out of resources, something happens to the carrying capacity. It has to go, uh, it has to go down to zero when you reach out, when you run out of all resources. And there's nothing left. There's no, there's no ability to make food. So, uh, we cannot, we can't get there because there has to be some kind of a, 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 what do you call it? An interpolation. There's some kind of function where our carrying capacity goes down as we approach the ecological footprint limit. So I know it in the limit, as we hit that limit, population will be zero. So we can never hit the limit. But how much will it go down at, with respect to how close we are to hitting that limit? So that, that's the question. How much will it, what is the force downward with respect to how close we are? And I thought, I thought, well, the best way to answer that question is not just to pick a number out of a hat, but use the population data that we have compared to the growth curve, the hyper, hyper exponential growth curve. When we look at that difference, that difference is how much Nature is forcing population down. Nature is the thing the population is hitting. It's forcing it down, but we feel the effect before we hit the wall. How much do we feel that effect? Now, do you mind if I pop in and, and get a couple questions? Because you've, it, to some people, I mean, you've described this to me before, and so I'm getting it more now than before, but I want to help people get it. So do you mind if we, if we take a break for, to, to, 
get some to get some more depth? Yeah, go ahead. All right, at the very beginning, actually, you, you talked about how people hadn't projected how high population could go or what limit it would reach. And I, so I think a lot of people look at projections that say it levels out somewhere around 10 billion plus or minus a bit and then kind of lowers a bit, maybe over the long term lowers a fair amount. But that leads to the question that I think most people have is how do we feed 10 billion people ongoing? And but that that leaves the question out of can we do like they can't conceive of deliberately changing the population. That's right. And or if they conceive of it, all they can think of is like, well, you're the you know the, what we were talking about before, and they, so they can't conceive of it being voluntary and non-coercive. Uh, they can't imagine. That- well, you can. Yeah. First, the question should be flipped around, not. How, you know, can we feed these 10 billion? No, it's the question should be with what we have, how many can we feed? What will the population be given the food? Not what do we have to do to get this much food? There was a, I think it's Brian Check who said, um, it's, it's not a question. Asking the question, how much food does it take to feed a growing planet is like asking the question, how much wood does it take to feed a growing fire? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The more. It's uh, so it's really you. You want to know uh, how many humans we can have given the 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 food supply, and this is in line with ecology and the concept of humans as a uh, as a species who are limited by carrying capacity. In, in biology, they're called a case selected species. Um, there are two types of species in ecology. There's the R selected, which just grow as rapidly as possible, and their population is controlled by the predators and then there's us who are don't have predators and uh, and many other species that don't have predators like whales and trees that just uh, grow up until they've consumed all the krill or all the light in the case of trees or in us uh, in the case of humans basically all arable land um, so we grow up to the population limit so and we're always if you believe Thomas Malthus, we're always at that limit. We're, we may be a little over or a little under, but we're always kind of oscillating around that limit. And it's the limit itself that's changing, which turns things on its head. And so someone might listen to what you're saying and saying and think, well, this is just some scientist doing some theoretical calculations. It's all, it sounds very theoretical, all these assumptions, but you're looking at the data that's projecting what's going on and it's wrong it's predict the so the models that we have now are showing not what's actually happening so if we don't understand what's if we can't project project what's actually happening we're going to horribly i mean if we well, it's it's hard for me to say it it's i i don't think they're wrong in the present we don't know that for sure but i'm i'm trying to say they're wrong in the future because that's not the way the system behaves. It doesn't just go up and level off as we destroy our own food supply. That's not going to happen. I thought, oh, maybe it's because Jana Sullivan points out that they keep overestimating the numbers, the UN, and they, every year they have to adjust downward. The last time we talked, we, oh, 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 okay. I get your point. Yes. Thank you. Um, so they are, in fact, finding that they're wrong. But when they're adjusting it, 
are they now imposing a carrying capacity, a dynamic carrying capacity? I'm guessing no. So they're, they're just doing it by hand, and you're saying, wait, this is this is nature. We should be able to predict. We should be able to understand why it's if it's yeah if it keeps happening the same way. We should be able to project it, predict it, and understand what's going on, not just keep erasing it and, and redrawing it. Yeah, if you put it like that, it doesn't sound good. But um, I think that's the, my major complaint with the demographic models are that they only really consider birth rate, death rate, and all the trends, and then migration. They never consider carrying capacity. And uh, this is a problem with the whole field of demographics, and it gets down to the root of it. The demographics, uh, demographers are not in biology departments. They're not in ecology departments. They're in economics departments, where that's what they do. You just fit a curve blindly. If you're in an ecology department, you look at the environment. I'm not in an ecology department, but <laughs> I'm in a biology department, and that's close enough. And so I look at how nature is going to affect population. Um, that's that's a fundamental difference between the, the UN model and my projections and those of uh, uh, Dana Meadows and, and others who have developed these world models. And you're talking about – you've mentioned Malthus a couple times, and I think there's a lot of people – who knee-jerk respond, Malthus was wrong. He predicted things would fall apart earlier. They haven't. They never have. And therefore, we can reject him. Right. Uh, now, I actually, there's a big difference between Malthus and today. I, I don't, and I haven't talked to someone who's actually gone back and read the original. I've only read a little bit of the original, uh, but the writing is not. It's hard. So easy to read. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, I'll tell you who I really read, and I, I can't remember the guy's name, but he did an excellent biography on Malthus in 1890. And so that's the guy that I really read. And I have gone back and looked at the original, and it is kind of hard uh, yeah. to read because it's it's that, you know, Renaissance English or whatever that era, Enlightenment period English. Now, I do believe that he did not project pollution like he said, we would run out of food, we run out of resources, but not that we would pollute our world. And that to me seems like a whole other – I mean, he certainly didn't have a systems approach like the limits to growth people did. No, he had a phenomenological approach, but and he and he never talked about uh, global. He did actually in a few in, – in some theoretical examples, but most of this – what is it? A 400-page book is about how population is controlled – in other countries. And he goes into great depth and he studies the history of lots of countries, Europe, Asia, Pacific, the Americas. And I, I don't know how many stories I could tell about all those different... Uh, he, he just looks at history, natural history and human history from the point of view of population. That was the big contribution that Malthus uh, made. And the outcome of it was that we oscillate around the carrying capacity, not that we collapse. No, that was, that was a mischaricature of Malthus that happened around the, around the 1920s when Margaret Sanger uh, started Planned Parenthood and they started using this term Malthusian and they focused on some mention that Malthus made that um, famine stalks in the rear. And so they, they attached him to the four horsemen of the apocalypse but that's not in Malthus's writing. Uh, he he talks 
his major point is carrying capacity and how and what kind of human uh, social mechanisms we have uh, to decrease our um, burden on the uh, um, food supply. Um, I can remember a few, like in Norway, uh, they would put more people in the army back then if they didn't have, you know, that kept, kept some men out of circulation that way. Um, Native Americans, um, they just uh, de-emphasized sex. They, they had a cultural, they, were, they had an anti-sex culture. Um, Pacific Islanders, uh, young men reaching 18 uh, were encouraged to do suicidal things because there's not enough papayas on the island, you know. So they, <laughs> they said, uh, be a man, go out and spend a week on the dugout canoe and see if you can survive it. Um, other cultures such as Borneo actually relied on murder to keep the population down. And, um, and in England, the one, the, the, the one country that Malthus knew the best, uh, population was kept down by increasing the inequality between the rich and the poor. Um, he saw this, you know, pushing down on the poor as the system's way of killing the poor, making it, making them less and less healthy, working them harder. And so they just died at a higher rate. Um, so Malthus was also a cleric. And so it was a, something he felt that this was both immoral and natural at the same time. Uh, it's kind of hard to fathom what his real thoughts might have been on the subject. But, uh, well, I think he, his goal was to promote virtue, right? It was a moral. Yes, that's correct. Uh, case that he wanted, he wanted to increase morality in, in his world. Yeah, he, he definitely didn't like, and he, he was vocal about his opposition to certain laws, uh, including laws of, of charity and the, and the so-called corn laws, uh, which had restrictions on the importation of grain, uh, because he felt like he didn't want to artificially increase the carrying capacity. Um, he didn't like the practice of workhouses and working people to death and the, the gross inequality. He wanted to abstinence. He says it's like the only virtue. He even says abortion, of course, is a sin and contraception is a sin, is a sin, but there's nothing wrong with abstinence. So he, um, he put abstinence on, on a pedestal as the, the solution to all of our social, their social ills. So, um, that was the day. We now have not such an aversion to abortion and, uh, thankfully contraception is considered morally okay now. Yeah. One of the reasons I brought up that Malthus didn't talk about pollution as something, I mean, we're, I live in a very polluted world right now. I mean, you and I both saw orange skies that much of the world had saw long before New York State did. Uh, when I say orange skies, there was a, these, for people who don't know, there were wildfires in Canada that got blown down here. So we had a couple days of, I think New York City was the most polluted city in the world for a couple days. And we normally aren't because we were right on the ocean. But the pollution is, I, I, I guess because in limits to growth, there's businesses, the first couple projections that they have 
or simulations. One is business as usual. The other is business as usual too. Business as usual one is like using the average numbers and it shows there's a, that if we just keep going with that, if those numbers are right, then there'd be the population would drop within the period of a time span of a few decades. It would drop by something like half or more. And now the business as usual two case said, what if we had twice as much non-renewable resources? Imagine there was you know twice as much oil and gas and everything as before. You'd think that would mean that we wouldn't run out, but or that like maybe that would fix the thing, fix the problems. So we just need more energy. But it just shows that it leads to we grow a bit longer, but then the the collapse becomes steeper and deeper. And to me, that if I think of limits to growth as describing like the envelope of how things can go, what types of patterns there are, that there's a one range is having if there was just not if there's like very little fossil fuels in the ground ever, then maybe enough for say the the industrial revolution take off, but not really anything past that. We would have had a small industrial revolution that we go back to wind and uh, when I say wind, like Don Quixote windmills and uh, solar being photosynthesis. And we go back to the way we were before. There would be just be, there's simply human ingenuity. It's just, we wouldn't be um, having all the like factories and so forth that we do today. But there's another realm that if we have plenty of stuff, it's the worry isn't that we run out of it. It's that we choke ourselves, that we, we, there's only so much of our own waste that we can live in. And I don't think Malthus ever could have imagined that. No, I think Malthus uh, lived in a world where uh, carrying capacity was a constant. I mean, he was seeing in the early 19th century uh, population growth in England. It was uh, really obviously uh, growing dramatically, but he was not conscious, I think, of, of carrying capacity. He, he talked about population oscillating around the carrying capacity, but he never he didn't talk about how the carrying capacity itself could crash, come crashing down. That's what we're seeing now. That's why it, it's not Malthus's oscillations that are going to crash the population. It's the carrying capacity itself that's crashing. Okay, and that's what you're. So that's a great segue back to your what you're talking about before. So you're creating models. You're seeing that that's that carrying capacity changing is not showing up. And if we use up all the non-renewable resources and we turn renewable resources into non-renewable resources, like the fish can't find each other to reproduce, so then they they might not be something that was once reproducible may become non-reproducible. Uh, sorry, renewable may become non-renewable, and likewise. If we fill up, if there's garbage everywhere and we're heating up the, the planet, then that's going to lower the carrying capacity. So mm -hmm. those aren't in the models. I, if I read you right, those weren't in models and you're trying to figure out how can we model that? It was, it was very hard uh, to model that. It was um, something where I started off with a very complex model like World 3, uh, the, the limits to growth model, where you had lots of different aspects uh, the carrying capacity. You had arable land, you had the labor, the workforce, you had pollution, and you had climate change in the latest version of World 3. And I, I felt like there were just too many parameters. And I, I took the advice of the uh, very wise uh, world gazer, Ugo Bardi from Italy, uh, make it as simple as possible, he says. So I aggregated all of it together and just say that's all one thing. Wait, isn't it? Sorry to interrupt. 
Isn't it make it as simple as possible and not too simple? Wasn't that Einstein? That's Einstein. Okay. That's Einstein. But Ugo Bardi kind of reflects that, the same thing. Einstein was a little tongue-in-cheek when he said that. But everything, he was right. And it's true in physics, too. When you write an, uh, an equation to model something, don't include variables you don't need. So, um, but Ugo Bardi's point was different. He was, he says, if you make a model simple, people can understand it. And he called it mind size modeling. You should, you should interview Ugo Bardi. <laughs> uh, mind, t- tell him to talk about mind size modeling. And you have to have it on video because he's got to show you his very simple <laughs> model called, uh, made of popsicle sticks and how it explodes when you remove one stick. <laughs> so, uh, but mind size modeling was the point. So make it, I was teaching. I wanted to be able to explain this model. So if I over aggregate, what is it? I'm going to, I'm going to get problems. I'm going to go, Oh, you're not including, well, the different age groups of humanity. You're not including all the different types of non-renewables and renewables. And Hey, you're not even separating between non-renewables and renewables in the model. It's all one thing just called resources. I call it the ecosphere. So, um, and I, I have kind of pat answers to all those things. One, you have to aggregate to make a mind size model. And two, it's kind of, there's a, there's a spectrum from truly non-renewable to truly renewable. And so everything's non-renewable to some degree. So I just treated it like that. And my equations, and I have an equation that is fitted to the data, which is kind of how much of nature constitutes non-renewable and how much of nature constitutes renewable. And, uh, and it's not blocked up. It's, it's an equation and it has a parameter and that, that is a variable and that that variable is discovered by uh, fitting it to the data. So it's always going back to the data. And your goal is not to get perfect numbers. It's to figure out patterns. Do I read that right? My goal was to fit the data that we had, which is at the time was just up to 2010 census data. And that data is pretty good. It's estimated plus or minus 3% uh, from the truth. So my goal was to fit that data. So the, the important data for population decline fitting was from 1970 to 2010. And, uh, and so I, I used that. And then it projecting forward, I got a wide variety of possibilities. It turns out even with my simple model, there was more than one way. There's more than one combination of these uh, parameters that will fit the data from 1970 to, to 2010. And so I just tried the whole range of them. It's called, it's called sensitivity analysis. We mess with the variables and you see how much they affect your, your predictions. And they're, the outcomes were very wide, but they all had a, a population peak happening within the next 10 years, except in a very extreme low probability case. All the, the business as usual models have population peaking in the next 10 years and then decreasing down to a different level depending on the parameters. So and there, there was actually one parameter that made very, I had to have it, but it had very little to say about the past and a lot to say about the future. So I'm, I'm next 
iteration of World 4, I'm going to try and uh, refine refine the model and narrow the range of predictions because they're they're all over the place. They, I have the the extremes are we stay at eight billion, and the the, the lower extreme is we go down to about hundred million. None of the none of the predictions go to human extinction, which might be a problem because there's there's plausible uh, scenarios for going to human extinction. Well, the yeah, the limits to growth people talk about that when they outside a certain range, their model doesn't apply anymore. It, you start entering a different physical situation. Yeah, you 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 hand it over to the sci-fi novelists. <laughs> uh, you do that's somewhat serious because a sci-fi novel, especially if they're writing you know hard science fiction, no magic, no sci- no fantasy in there, they have to stick within the the laws of physics. Uh, they can come up with plausible scenarios for human extinction. Did you see Children of Men? No. Do you see um, uh, 2049? What was it? Uh, Blade Runner 2049? Yeah. <laughs> I felt like the, the, the world there was uh, its own character in the movie. Same with Children of Men. It was, I feel like people thought that stuff through. They weren't just like throwing stuff up and saying like, how about this? How about that? They're trying to make it work. Right. They wanted, I think they had a, an artistic uh, goal. And that was they wanted dystopian, but with technology. Now, yeah, they had the flying car. Yeah, yeah. The more more plausible is that if you have uh, you know kind of a breakdown of order and a, and a decrease in population, you're you're probably going to have a decrease overall in technology. Then the more plausible futures are. Um, what's his name? James Howard Kunstler's uh, world made by hand, where everything just gets unmechanized. You go back to farming. Oh, I haven't seen that. Is that a movie or book? No, it's a series of books. So that's, do you have any interest in that? He's a, Kunstler is a, um, what do you call it? Landscape architect. Was, uh, his interest has always been in designing cities, but he's also a doomsayer, you know? <laughs> and so he's written this fiction about, you know, I haven't read it, so I can't, I can't really tell you what it's about. I heard him talk. Last time you talked about how you were talking about how population might lower, and I felt like you were saying I was anticipating a steeper collapse, or let's let's not be too alarmist, but like a steeper lowering of population than you were. What, what's what? I mean, if you play ahead, we got a couple decades left, each of us. Yeah. What do you see happening? Well, what did you propose as the time frame? What did you think of the the downslope? What was your predictions on that? Predictions, hard to say, because I haven't done the numbers, but it feels to me like when populations start decreasing, then you start... I see it almost inevitable that there will be lots of refugees. There already are, in the United States, climate refugees. Yeah. And that's just climate. There's whole other types of issues that... Um, depopulation, deforestation, things like, or, sorry, deforestation and um, uh, aquifers depleting and things like that, which might happen even if we fixed, say, if we could magically or otherwise get all the greenhouse gases out, we might still use up all the aquifers. Right. So I could see um, 
migration on the scale that no borders could keep out, leading to uh, defending uh, people doing their best to defend borders, which isn't going to work because the starving is also happening within the country. And starving not being the only thing. It's also dying from cancer. We have Cancer Alley in the United States as, yeah. as well as sacrifice zones. So I just see large-scale migration leading to defending territory, leading to something that we the world has never seen before. Is like we have weapons that can kill lots of people at one time. And I could see that happening, Yeah, which would lead to using up resources faster and population decreasing faster through killing each other. Yeah. So I could easily see a small tip leading to a dramatic decrease in definitely quality of life and then number of people living happening within like on the decade timescale, losing people on the scale of a billion people. I thought you were going to say faster than that because a, a decade of war would be too much. I think. Well, it's- I'm thinking. Well, it's going to slow down too once. Um, and and when I say when I say billion people, I mean billions of people on the scale of billion. I'm going to start with your scenario, but I think I'm, I have a different idea of where it's going to go. Um, and I, I'm you know a disciple of Thomas Malthus, so I'm kind of voicing what Malthus would probably say, is that um, war does not lead to more war. Uh, war leads to a decrease in the population, which leads to less need for more war. So I think it might, I, I think we're going to get all the lead ups to an awful, awful war, and it's going to come to a war. But as soon as the war stops, it's going to put itself out because uh, it's going to, finally make a dent in the population and it's going to horrify people, but it's also going to make a certain number of mouths to feed go away. And there people will say, well, I guess we're not in such bad shortage anymore. <laughs> so I, I don't think it's going to collapse uh, dramatically. Would that number not have to be below the carrying capacity? Yes. Or else there'd be another. So if we're at 8 billion and the, cam- and the carrying capacity is... So you don't know what the carrying capacity is. Well, right now, what's our our population is eight billion. I'd say our carrying capacity is eight billion, right now. Well, that's using fossil fuels and polluting, right. so it's lowering the carrying capacity. So, but then we're our population is going to follow the carrying capacity. I'm I'm kind of using population as a measure of the carrying capacity, and uh, even though we're using up fossil fuels, we came up with alternatives, and we we invented fracking and uh horizontal drilling and so we we and we and uh what's it called bitumen so um we've used up all the easy fossil fuels while we're going to and we're now going to start depleting the not so easy and then when we're done with that we're going to burn wood (laughs) it's uh we're going to just you know consume our way down the energy food chain see i'm thinking that at some point there's a couple bottlenecks that some people say we'll just innovate our way around them, but the big one to me, which I got originally from um, uh, Countdown, Alan Weissman's book, was uh, artificial fertilizers, that bef- without them, the carrying capacity is something like what it was before the Green Revolution. Right. And that's $2 billion, $3 billion. Now we we have developed technology since then, so maybe it would be somewhat higher. But I mean, that's a big. I don't think we have a way of around that. 
and also as we pollute more, we're lowering the carrying capacity in a way. I mean, we're going to, at some point. Yeah. I don't know how to put it. I mean, at some point where the, the carrying capacity is dropping, not because of, um, we don't have enough land to grow something on, but the land is so polluted. The water is so polluted. The fish can't live in an ocean that's when there's, where there's more plastic than, than them. Yeah. But I see that as something that's happening uh, gradually and also some of it even being remediated. And yeah, it's, it's using up arable land. It's using up fresh water. Uh, it's even the, the thing that we're consuming that's going to do the most damage to humanity is the ability of the Earth's atmosphere to mitigate extremes, otherwise known as climate change. We are, we're making the climate more fragile. It's not global warming, it's global weirding. And, uh, that's the thing that's going to have the biggest effect on our, our food supply because this, the crops that we depend on themselves depend on a constant temperature and constant humidity. So, um, things are going to get way more expensive if we have to do all our farming in greenhouses and irrigate everything. Um, or they're just going to be less efficient. So, but I don't think it's going to be overnight crash. I don't think it's going to be instantaneous. It's, it's going to be this gradual downturn because I think most of the, the effect of the downturn is, is not a, a positive feedback, but a negative feedback. So going down in population resists going down further in population because it, it frees up more resources. Going down in population reduces our effect on climate. So uh, nature will recover. So you don't have a view that there's a, or I have a view that there's a, a carrying capacity that, a sustainable carrying capacity as opposed to where we are now that. Oh, I don't think of it as, as some magic number that's always there. The carrying capacity changes. Carrying capacity when we had all that easy oil was a lot higher uh, than the carrying capacity when we don't have that oil. So there isn't no one magic number. What are the things that change the that change that the carrying capacity that changing number? So as you mentioned, uh, artificial nitrogen for fertilization dramatically changed things. Uh, a breeding of crops uh, increases the food supply. Uh, Norman Borlaug, for example, made a new breed of wheat that I think he said quadrupled the yield uh, per acre. Um, those dramatically increase the food supply. Um, irrigation and new technologies in irrigation, including uh, center pivot wells to pull water up out of deep aquifers. But it's temporary because as they're finding out in Nevada and Utah, those aquifers aren't replenished on a human time scale. They're, they're getting used up and then they, and you have these big circular, uh, fields that are dry. You fly over the country, you can look down and you see all these circular fields. Those are center pivot irrigated fields and some of them are now brown. So, um, technology raised the carrying capacity and then Earth's limits does the opposite lowers the carrying capacity because we use it up. We use up the easy oil. We use up the fossil water. 
we use up the ability of the of the atmosphere to mitigate uh extremes and temperature and and uh and storms so um those that's what we're using up and that last one i think is the most uh although we're hitting the wall in so many different ways i really do think that uh uh the future of more storms is what's gonna hurt us the most does that make sense (laughs) Yeah, I don't think of it as a, as a magic number. I think of it as something that changes, but I think of us being well above it. The way I think about it, I'm not trying to debate anything. I'm not. Tr- I'm just saying the mo- the picture in my head is that there's there isn't a varying carrying capacity, but I think of w- if we are using technology that is unsustainable, then I don't count that as raising the carrying capacity. I think that we're artificially above it, and that will eventually, the longer we stay above it, the more we're lowering the sustainable carrying capacity. If we're staying above it through polluting things that pollute and deplete non-renewable resources that we depend on. So I think of it as, so the way I think of it is right now we're at 8 billion and the carrying capacity is something like 3 billion, but lowering all the time. Yeah. And I don't, I think there's a, a problem with the definition of the word, though. Uh, yeah, so you're talking about some some number called the sustainable carrying capacity, and I'm talking about the immediate carrying capacity of today. How much food we're we're producing this year? Um, and I, I I really I I would say I don't know if there is a sustainable carrying capacity or how meaningful that is, because the Earth doesn't really go through. Uh, that kind of doesn't doesn't bounce back to some level. It just it sets a new normal. It's not gonna we're not gonna go back. In fact, you know, the fossil fuel that we've used up, we're not gonna that's not gonna appear again. It's not growing back. Not at a, a time scale that we care about. So the sustainable might have been something higher two hundred years ago than it is now. Um so I just don't like to think about sustainable carrying capacity. Think about yeah, I guess you know yeah, I guess to talk about carrying capacity, I guess is an oversimplification. I guess I would think of if if we decide if fossil fuels, uranium, if these things or PV, uh, photovoltaic, if we if in order if we dis, if we discover that in order to make these things, we're killing more people than we're saving. Then we may say, all right, we got to stop using those things. In which case, to say we, then the population will have to adjust to the technologies that we're willing to use. Or alternatively, if we don't do that, then nature will drive us down faster. Or if we think that the, the pollution from these things will put, kill more people than it saves. Well, so that makes sense. I mean, nature will drive us down faster the more we drive nature down. So whatever we're doing, to be smarter uh, and to, to use things more efficiently is going to end up manifesting itself in a higher population where it is a higher carrying capacity because we're, we're not destroying uh, the earth's ability to sustain us. So, um, but one of those things that I'm talking about to be more efficient is population itself. If you can keep population down, you can keep usage of resources down, getting back to the IPAT equation. 
So um, you can be more efficient. That's the T in the iPad equation. You can use less, which is what you're doing. You're the poster boy for using less. That's the A in the iPad equation. And you can have fewer kids, and that's the P in the iPad equation. So, and it's not one or the other. Those things are multiplied together. The affluence decreases only to the extent the number of people that are practicing, uh, you know, conservation. Uh, again, in an, and it, we could make the equation a lot more complicated by realizing that not everybody is at the same affluence and not everybody has access to those technologies. So it's, it should be like a, a sum overall uh, subpopulations of the planet. But on the average, if you decrease your consumption, on the average, if you're smarter about your consumption, and uh, then you're going to have a decreased impact on the planet. Now, the T, the I and PAT, the T and PAT, does that mean more technology means more impact or less impact? It's a, it's a conversion factor of units. Uh, population is per capita. Affluence is hectares per capita. And uh, so that is how much area on the planet you need per person. And then technology is impact per hectare. No, I'm sorry. Affluence. Did I get that right? Population times uh, affluence is like energy per hectare. And then uh, technology is impact per unit energy. I think I got it right this time. And there's got to be some people in there too because of the P. P is the, is the number, the per capita. Uh, that's the capita, <laughs> uh, the number of people. And then technology is just how much impact you have per unit consumed. How much impact on the environment you have per unit consumed. And so that can be positive and negative. Uh, you could, I suppose, have a, a positive impact on, uh, on the environment. So a negative impact, uh, T. But I think in the most parts, it's, um, it's a, positive T, you're consuming, you're, you're impacting the earth, but you're impacting it, uh, at, uh, at different degrees. Some pot, some technologies reduce your impact. Some technologies increase your impact. So, um, it's, it's one of these simplifications. <laughs> Let's segue into speaking of technologies that affect impact your work. Yeah. And what's, is it, do you consider you, your work with the vaccines one of the most important things that could be done right now? Well, it's something that I've uh, gravitated towards because I thought it's the most impactful thing I can do using my skills as a biochemist. Um, I have, you know, worked on other things that I thought would have impact. For example, enzymes that can degrade uh, PET plastic. But I don't think that's going to have nearly the impact uh, as uh, developing a, a hands-off contraceptive. So that's what we're working on now. So, yeah, can you tell us what it is? So it's a, a vaccine, as you may know, is a substance which raises immunity. But there's two types. There's so-called T-cell and B-cell immunity. T-cell immunity uh, raises uh uh, T cells, which then fight back the infection by, by cells attacking the bacteria. And that's important for bacterial infection. 
And B cell immunity raises antibodies, which are molecules or protein molecules, which uh, attack, and this is more useful for a virus. We're interested in developing a vaccine that attacks sperm. And then the antibodies then stick to the sperm and prevent the sperm from moving. And if it's uh, a non-moving sperm, it's not going to be able to uh, penetrate the ovum. And so you'll have contraceptive antibodies. So that's what we're working on as a vaccine to raise contraceptive antibodies. Um, rest is very techy. If you want to know, I'll tell you. Has it, well, I mean, the first thought is there's a lot of sperm and it feels like the odds of getting them all seems kind of low, but maybe you don't have to get rid of them all or is it, how effective do you think it would be? Do you think it would be effective? Well, the, the proof's in the pudding, right? And so it has, we have done it. It, it does work. So that's the proof. And, and, and this argument that there's a lot of sperm, and somebody uh, had quoted a number, uh, appeared on the negative reviews of my grant proposal. And I was not granted the money by that by the NIH to do this work uh, because of exactly that. And I said, hey, there are, there are women that are immune and fertile that have ASA, anti-sperm antibodies. How they got those? We don't know. Maybe an injury in the reproductive tract or something. But in any case, they, the, the fact that they exist shows that, yes, you can do it. So, um, yeah. So, so much for that idea. <laughs> and the number of antibodies in the vaginal mucosa greatly outnumbers the sperm. Hundredfold, thousandfold. So, they're, they're, enough, they're in an, enough quantity that they can knock out enough of the sperm so that the odds of one of them getting all the way up into the fallopian tubes is, is minuscule to zero. So, so how does this play out? So when is it every female on the planet when she reaches a certain age or maybe at birth gets a, a vaccine? Well, in the in medical school, they teach you about informed consent. So. Uh, this, of course, is only, and of course, I'm going to follow the uh, recommendations of medical community here, and that's going to be that uh, women can be vaccinated if they consent and they're over 18, or if their parents consent and uh, if they're under 18. And the vaccine can be uh, administered at, at any time, I believe, after infancy. Uh, we don't know. Uh, what the minimum age is, but I, I know, um, our Gardasil, which is an anti, uh, cancer vaccine is uh, given to girls age nine. So, um, they don't have to wait till puberty to get a vaccine against pregnancy. So, um, now, but you're talking about how does it play out? Uh, it would be, once it's on the market and it's gone through clinical trials, we'd have to have some kind of an outreach program so that people are aware of it and you just have to advertise. And then uh, for young women or girls, it would go uh, to the, the parents. We'd argue uh, better this than an unwanted child, better this than a, a, an abortion, you know, back alley abortion, even worse if you happen to be in uh, Texas or one of the places where they're, making it very hard to get abortions. So I think they would see the light and uh, and take, get the vaccine. And here there's no 
fertilized egg. So they're, the, it will not affect the egg at all. Uh, egg's still there, not getting fertilized though. <laughs> not if the, not if antibodies are there. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the sperm will be immobilized to not be able to swim. And, and that sperm have to not only be able to swim, they have to be able to swim in hyperactive mode in order to get through the protective layer around the egg, so-called zona pellucida, ZP. So uh, that's, uh, we're in the process of making this vaccine. We're learning a lot about how sperm swim. And we're learning about the uh, specific proteins in the sperm and, and what their roles are and how to, and how in the swimming process. So um, it's really interesting to me. I'm not sure it would be very interesting to your listeners, but it is a, a, there's a lot of physiology and biochemistry behind this uh, vaccine. It's not just try something and see if it works. We're really trying to understand how sperm work and we're placing our antibodies very precisely. They just go exactly where we tell them to go. How many of the people are working or teams are working on something like this? Well, um, the Tawar Institute in Delhi, India, is very far along on their contraceptive vaccine. They're in clinical trials. And uh, they, their, their contraceptive vaccine is different. It's, a, it's against the egg. And, and so it doesn't prevent fertilization of the egg, but it prevents the implantation of the fertilized egg in the uterus. So it's uh, different. We decided to go with an anti-sperm vaccine because there are some people that believe life begins at conception. And uh, for them, the Tawar Institute's vaccine would be an abortifacient. It would not be a uh, contraceptive. So we, we decided to start a little earlier in the process and inhibit the sperm. There's also a group in China, and uh, rumor has it, a group in Japan, both working on uh, contraceptive vaccine. The one in China is doing the vaccine very similar to what we are, but they don't have this magic uh, technique we have. Uh, so they're, they are, I think we have an advantage over them in terms of uh, protein engineering. And I don't know anything about the group in Japan. I think they're just keeping mute. I would guess that you don't consider yourselves competitors because you're, I don't think you're in this for the money. <laughs> you're probably going to take a lot of heat politically if it gets big, but you probably have similar missions. Well, I don't know if I'll be able to have control over the IP. I'm going to try and keep it, but control over the intellectual property rights. Uh, but no, I'm not trying to make money on this. To me, the, 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 the richness of the legacy is all I crave. I, I want to be the one that, the, that, uh, came up with this new technology and I will, I'll be, I'll live my retirement very nicely. <laughs> um, there are connections. For instance, I hired a, um, a immunotechnologist from the Talwar Institute in India and he's the kind of heading up the whole, uh, contraceptive vaccine project here. Um, I did. I, I discussed and communicated with the group in China, so they know about me. I know about them, um, and I cited them in in my patent application. I gave credit to the group in China, so we work together. Scientists do that. Would you do you envision yourself like a sock, like that kind of reputation? Uh, <laughs> 
I'll try not to uh, let it go to my head. I just want to get it to work. And I'll just be very happy if, it, if I get it to work. I'll even hand it off to somebody else if I can't do it. I, I want to see it happen, whether I get the credit for it or somebody else does, doesn't matter. Oh, okay. So I, I thought you were talking when you were saying what you craved. Because now you sound more well, like that a- personal, personal satisfaction. <laughs> okay. Because now you sound more like a Feynman when he got the Nobel Prize. He's like, look, I, I did the discovery. I, I mean, I did the, the discovering the stuff was that was the, its own reward. This thing, this metal is like, what? It gets in the way. Yeah, there's a different, there's a, there's among a lot of scientists, there's a tournament mindset and they love getting prizes and basking in the glory. But that, in my opinion, is not what it's about. You get real good personal satisfaction by discovery and by translational science of getting something that you discovered in the lab to actually work and go to market. There's a there's a lot of personal satisfaction there that just doesn't translate to uh, money and fame. What do you think about? Uh, there's a lot of people out there who talk about um, you know more people means solving more problems. And I mean I, I don't want to get into, but like people are going to attack you. I think. Yeah. I mean you. I mean you're you're talking about a strictly voluntary thing that people can choose to do themselves. It seems to be like the libertarian ideal. If, mm-hmm. um, that they can choose to do it if they want. They don't have to if they don't want. And I presume that there are going to be some populations. I've definitely, you know, I, I like to bring lots of people on this podcast from lots of different areas. And I've had evangelicals who are like, we can't wait for these non-evangelicals to start working on lowering their populations because we're going to have more and more babies and we're going to take over. Okay. <laughs> and I say, go for it. Uh, the The goal is to save the planet, not to save any particular race or culture or something just decrease and that and you know if somebody starts to overburden their own region they're going to have forces uh you know affecting their population that have nothing to do with the contraceptive vaccine uh, those that use the vaccine and decrease their family size are basically going to be uh living better because they they have uh, more resources per person in their immediate you know environment, their circle. So um, I don't pay any attention to those uh, those people that say uh, more for me. You know, <laughs> give it a try. Go ahead. I don't think that people who have fewer kids are giving away all their money yet. Uh, if that was the case, then they they would have uh, a point. They they would say, oh, those people have fewer kids, therefore they're giving away the hundred thousand dollars that they would have spent raising them to age eighteen. No, uh-uh, that's a fantasy. They don't do that. It isn't that wealth is automatically going to be spread if we if there's fewer kids. Well, are you are you open to talking about immigration? Sure. Yeah. So, if a country lowers its population, or say a lot of people do this, and their population, the U.S. seems to be um, well beyond what it could sustain. So, if we drop down to a lower number, but then we kept immigrate kept lots of immigration coming in yeah then what would happen yeah uh um so not not my expertise but i i would go back to my um systems dynamics hat and uh and say what would happen if i put uh strong borders into the into the model what would happen and i know what would happen you would have a greater difference between the rich and the poor. So if you put strong borders 
it, it be, I say that because most immigration is going from poor to rich. There, very few of us are, are migrating from a rich country to a poor country. I went, I lived in Nicaragua for three years, but I, I was not going to stay there for my whole life. <laughs> uh, but you see a lot of people from Nicaragua coming north because there's more resources here. So what happens if you have open borders? So you have a leveling of economics. People are going to move out of poor countries and move into rich countries, making the rich countries poorer. Um, so what's going to happen to population when you level things out? Uh, it means that, that there's going to be uh, less hardship, therefore uh, less of a death rate, therefore population will be going up relative to the case of harder borders. So to say it the other way around, let's suppose we make the borders infinitely strong. Nobody can change countries. Then uh, the rich are going to stay rich, and the poor are going to stay poor, and so the, the poor are going to have a higher death rate because they just have poor nutrition, just not as many resources. So they're not going to be able to raise their uh, their their standing uh, by moving to a richer country. So they're going to maintain the higher death rate that they have in the poor country. So population would not go up as much, or or will go down, or go down faster. So borders translate to decreasing uh, trajectory in population growth. Does that make sense? <laughs> I think so. And I think that the higher, the, the stronger the borders, I think the more people are going to realize, parents are probably going to say, I want to have fewer kids. Well, there, yeah, there, it isn't strictly true that uh, poor people are going to maintain their same lifestyle when they move to a rich country. They're going to have some cultural rub off. Uh, they're going to, they're going to become more like the people around them, but not completely. So Mexican uh, woman might have four or five kids when they come to the U S it might be three or four, still more than the average uh, for uh, somebody who's been here for longer, uh, a more in, uh, what do you call it? Naturalized person. My wife uh, is from Nicaragua. We had two kids, but if she had been, she'd stayed in Nicaragua, she'd probably have a family of four like her brother. And if the borders were infinitely strong in that hypothetical case, I would guess that people in Nicaragua would probably say themselves, let's have fewer kids. They'd, they'd probably say, let's have fewer kids. I mean, I would guess that they would say there's less energy available in the future per person. So we're not helping ourselves or our children to have more children. Yeah, if they have the foresight, they would do exactly what Malthus would predict and that they'd find ways to decrease their their population. And as it is, if they have uh, the hope, the, my, my wife was telling me a lot of people in Mexico or in, in uh, Central America uh, getting pregnant and they're coming across the border and having the baby on the U.S. side, making the baby a U.S. citizen, and it's called an anchor baby. So uh, if that's how child if, if that's how family size responds to the openness of the borders then i think it, it it makes my point makes your point if people if the borders really are closed they're not going to be able to, to do that and i when i say closed borders i mean both to people and to goods as if you have goods and money 
crossing the border, it's really the same thing as having people cross the border. People come here for more resources, but if resources go out, that that's going to do the same thing. That's the spread, spreading of the wealth. I always think that I would like – I look at the history of how rich and – yeah, in business school, I remember in economics learning that money and goods flow from poor countries to rich countries. And I thought, wait a minute. We're giving them all that aid. But then I realized that's how that's how it happens. That's how it sustains is the yeah. money flows. So it feels to me like one of the best things – one of the most effective things we can do on sustainability is to help the countries that have been – Maybe I'm overstating, but plundered. Maybe I'm understating it. Right, and become food sustainable. I mean, you could you could put a nice spin on it and saying, you know, if we stop importing uh, bananas and coffee from the south, we're going to become food sustainable here. I hate saying that because I love coffee, but uh, but you're right. Uh, these countries are poor and kind of maintained poor because they're providing cheap food for us. Uh, so we don't want their economies to get better because then their exports to the U.S. are are more costly to us. So In the current model. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we do want them. I mean, I personally want them. To me, it seems like I want them to improve. I, yeah, I feel like the current system says let's keep them um, – let's keep plundering them, especially the smart people. And then mm -hmm. that just sets up a situation to get a flow of people and plundered goods coming here which looks good if you in the short term but it just keeps them impoverished yeah and we run eventually they run out of stuff i mean we um i i put it in kind of in economic terms that we by keeping them poor uh, our food is cheaper for us but uh, malthus would have looked at that and said uh you're it's it's also a population control mechanism um, we are, we can have a higher population if we have cheaper food. They can't have a higher population if they are, uh, living in poverty. They're going to die of all those diseases that we don't die from. So, um, I think Malthus would look at the economics of it and say, economics is just a proxy for population. We're, we're maintaining the carrying capacity in these poor countries and, and keeping it low so that we can have a higher one. So it's kind of like importing people indirectly. I think that's not going to go over well, but it's like um, if we are by our economic imperialism, keeping the populations low where we get our food. And if we are by using that food, able to have larger families then the children that were not born there are, are born here. That's what I mean by that. And I think though that we, do promote them growing more people because we want to pick the cream of the crop. And now I think a lot of people, I hear a lot of people say that lower, when they hear helping um, manage the population, I think they, they just can't help but hear impo like us imposing on them and we just want to lower their population. But that's why this research that shows that there's a huge, as I understand, and I haven't looked at the details, but I understand that there's a huge demand unmet for contra effective contraception. Yeah, actually, I wanted to get to that. So it, um, it's fun to talk about uh, borders and economics. But um, yes, in, in answer to a question, 
that you put before, um, I mean, how does it play out? Uh, I think a contraceptive vaccine is going to be an attractive alternative because the studies that uh, have been done on intention of pregnancy are showing that something like half of all uh, pregnancies are unwanted, un unplanned, let's say. An unplanned breaks down to uh, too early, so-called mistimed, and simply unwanted. So if you had perfect contraception, that number goes to zero. What happens to the population if you eliminate just half of pregnancies? Well, you would no longer be growing. We would stop population growth right away. So this is why I'm still a disciple of Malthus, because all you need in order to control population is to control pregnancy. You don't need to suppress the Nicaraguans by, by you know, keeping the the the, the the price of coffee and bananas very low, so they're in, in living in poverty and dying at a higher rate. Uh, you don't need those mechanisms. You can do it all by decreasing the birth rate, and you can do it because people want to have fewer kids. That's what that's what it's saying. In fact, if you look at the trend in birth rate over the last 20, 30 years, it's been nothing but down. And not only that, it's even it's going down even steeper. They're monitoring this at the UN. They're all they're aware of that, and they're making their corrections to their population projections. And then they do something weird in order to save their projections. They project that the that the birth rate is going to go up again <laughs> next year. <laughs> it's going to it's just going to bounce back. This is just a temporary thing. I don't think so. I think what you're seeing is that women are looking. They're projecting at what life's going to be like for their kids, and they're deciding how many kids to have. It's the women that are doing this, not the men. They're deciding life is looking rough, doesn't look like it's getting any better. We're going to have smaller families. Or if you're like my girls, you're not going to have kids at all. Why would you say it's the women, not the men? Are men hopeless and they just always want as many babies as possible? <laughs> I mean, are they stupid? Or Because I think, I think men want smaller families too. No, I think um, the there's a the trend is in both men and women, but men tend to track towards higher families uh, more than women. And I think there's something instinctual there that women are just more in tune with uh, the economy around them, you know, the the quality of life issues than men are. Uh, men don't have to; they haven't been evolved to be uh, caretakers as much as women. And also the studies where you you ask women what's their ideal family size, you get a smaller number than if you ask men what their ideal family size is. And again, this is you know average, not not the individual men. They're they're of course uh, good men, uh, um, but on average, the uh, if you if you listen to men, we would have more of a population problem than if you listen to women. And it's something that sets. See, I think that. From the point of view of settlers and colonists, say, around 1700, from their perspective, there were these two giant empty continents. Yeah. In that context, having a lot of babies makes a lot of sense. It's economically – it makes it, – it's – And they did. <laughs> yeah. And so – A most amazing demonstration of the uh, the fertility capacity of humanity was in the Americas after the colonization. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think the doubling time was 25 years. And that's the fastest doubling time 
in, I don't know, recorded history, I think, was that humans on the east coast of uh, North America, we expanded rapidly. And so we're the product of, of several centuries of this culture. And I think that if people had this sense that if people think, well, growth is unbounded, we can, we can grow forever, then from their perspective, having lots of babies makes a lot of sense because they're in the situation that the the settlers were in, in 1700. Yeah. Then you become a, our selected species. <laughs> you're like a, like a sea urchin, just trying to put out as many sperm and as many eggs as you can, because then your genes get passed on at the expense of the other sea urchins. So to me, the, our cultural perspective is a big piece of this. That as long as people think, ah, oh, we can grow forever, the more, more babies means solutions to more problem, more problem solvers. So. Yeah, more, more people means more Newtons. I think that's what it is. Yeah, somehow they never leave out the uh, the villains. <laughs> they, they think like, oh, there'll be more people like me, but more Hitlers. Yeah, they never think of yeah, they never think of well, it's going to be distribution like it is now. And anyway, yeah, <laughs> there was something I wanted to close with that. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Here's this thing that I this view like how to market this stuff is that a lot of people think. A lot of people, as always, they think coercion. They think, okay, we're not talking about that. If families want to be a certain size, then what a vaccine does, like yours, is assuming it works. It's not that it lets you control the number of children you have. There are many ways to do that. What it does is it makes sex more fun. <laughs> you don't need for condoms. Yeah, it's more fun. I mean, it, it depends on what people want. If you want fun, it's fun. If it's if you want spirituality, it's going to be more spiritual. It's going to be it's going to be less inhibited. Mm -hmm. I think it's where yeah, it is. Or unless you want it to be inhibited, in which case it's still be inhibited, but it's not going to require any last minute uh preparation before sex. That's that's what it will the advantage it will have. But I think what's going to have more impact than my technology is going to be uh the social advancements of uh, outreach to young women and getting uh, young women to adopt contraception early on because a, a lot of the unwanted children are teenage mothers or from teenage mothers. So um, I think that's going to have a bigger impact than a new technology. Technology is out there in abundance. You know, mine is just maybe a, a little bit uh, easier on the body. There's, you're not injecting hormones, don't require implantation of a device in the uterus but now, women, uh, yeah women by biology set the pace but if men want bigger families shouldn't there be a lot of education for the men you know when i talk about the contraceptive vaccine they ask me can you can a man use it and uh unfortunately the male immune system uh doesn't allow antibodies to get into where the sperm are but um yeah, so, but that wasn't your question. What was it again? It was on education. If you're saying the most important thing would be socialization and education of, of girls and young women, what about yeah. educating the men if they're the ones who are pushing for bigger, uh, bigger population growth? Right, right. I think Bill Ryerson said if you just educate the women and don't educate the men, you just get more beaten wives. You have to educate the men. If they're, they're not going to get what they want if we give the women what they want, which is smaller families. So you, you don't want them that to play out in domestic violence. We do. So it's very important to educate everyone, educate the men. 
I think they're doing a great job at Population Media Center in doing exactly that. Yeah, Bill's been a guest on this podcast. Yeah. And yes, I just wanted to get across that what effective contraception means is sex the way you believe it should be. And yeah, spontaneous. <laughs> if that's the way you like it or planned out, if that's who you prefer. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it means that when you have sex, it doesn't, if you want it to be a decision for the next 20 years of your life, it can be, but you don't have it. It doesn't have to be. Yeah. So you don't need abstinence. Sorry, Malthus. We don't need abstinence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I thank you again for another great conversation, an enlightening conversation. Uh, anything I didn't think to ask? No, I think we've covered a lot of ground there. Maybe too much. I hope it's okay. I think so. Uh, we didn't cover. Oh, we did cover the the orange skies. I think we covered everything. Yeah, yeah, we've got the orange skies too. Thankfully, <laughs> that went away. I stayed inside. I started wearing a mask again. <laughs> yeah, because I I had extra. Yeah, still left. Yeah. So um, yeah. Thank you for having me. It's always a lot of fun talking with you. You ask all the greatest questions. Oh, you're making me blush. Well, Chris Bystroff, thank you very much. Thank you. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.